Let's stand as a church and read. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and we're going to read until verse 10. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, sang this morning, Cornerstone, we see here Peter's usage of you as a reference in different ways throughout this passage. God, we pray as we uh, look at this that we understand fully why you were and why it was necessary that you would be that as well. And how we, through faith, can become part of your spiritual temple, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice, allowing us to become living stones. As, as without that, Lord, we'd be dead stones. So God, we are just um, looking forward to our time together as we learn from you like we do every single week in Christ's name. So as we read verses 4 to 9, you probably noticed all of Peter's Old Testament imagery, especially with regards to the temple in the Old Testament. You notice the reference in verse 4. He talks here about him being the living stone. How about in verse 6 and 7, Jesus himself also, besides being called the living stone, be called the cornerstone. In verse 5, he refers to us being built up into a spiritual house. And he refers also to us as being priests in verse 5 and in verse 9. Now the reason for all this Old Testament temple imagery is he wants to tell us really one thing. He wants to show us, as New Testament Christians, how privileged we are and that we have direct and free, unlimited access to God through Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament times, that wasn't the case. And the temple, and the way it was designed, taught you that God was off limits to you. And here, Peter is showing us through this imagery how we have free, unlimited access to Him because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now these are really important words of reminder when you think about their context. And we talk about their context every single week because the context is so important for setting up every single chapter and every single verse we read. But remember again, these Christians are being persecuted for their faith. They're undergoing trials, uh, they're suffering, and uh, they're being tested. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm tested and going under, undergoing trial, I tend to look inward and get focused on myself and have a poor me, woe is me kind of view of life. And I forget, basically, about the privilege as I have as a Christian. And so Peter here, what he wants to do is help these people who are struggling and potentially going to lose hope in their Christian life from showing them, listen, I know things are tough, but you understand how privileged you are. And he wants to show them that they are far more privileged than, than any believer would have been in the Old Testament in terms of their experiences, in terms of their unlimited access again to God. So this is kind of like a pep talk and a word of encouragement by using this comparing the Old Testament temple to them as a New Testament temple. So basically, Peter wanted his readers to see how, or see the multifaceted glory of what it meant to be a child, the children of God as a New Testament Christian. And so he uses two metaphors from Old Testament temple imagery to help them understand this. First one he uses is the description of us, you and I, being living stones in verse 5. And the second imagery is this idea of us being a priesthood. In verse 5, we are the holy priesthood. And in verse 9, we are a royal priesthood. So let's look at the first metaphor, you and I being living stones in God's spiritual temple. Well, we have to kind of backtrack before we look at what it means for us to be living stones by remembering how buildings, like such as the temple, were built in ancient times. Central, central to the construction of a building made out of stone is the cornerstone. It's the most important stone in the entire building because it's the stone by which the entire building's architectural structure is determined. So it has to be a flawless stone. It has to be a precise stone in all its lines and angles. And the reason is, is it determines the accuracy of the remainder of the building. So if the cornerstone is off, on its vertical um, measurement, then the building goes sideways in a vertical direction. If the cornerstone is off in a horizontal direction, then the building goes crooked on that way as well. And actually, those of you who know Schultz, Lauren Schultz, he's a good storyteller and a great comedian, if you know him, he has a word in German called Scheif. He always talks about things being Scheif, and he means, Scheif means this, it's a little off, okay? So if the cornerstone is off, your temple is Scheif, and your building is Scheif. Speaking of Scheif, and everything like that, basically the cornerstone then is like the plumb line of a building. And Lawrence also has a fantastic story of an incident in his marriage that almost did the men. And if you know Lawrence and his stance on divorce and remarriage, you will know that for him to admit this almost led to divorce is a pretty big statement by him. But he talked about this time he went wallpapering with Millie in his house. And uh, he bought this perfectly square wallpaper. So he lines it up in the very corner of the room, thinking this is going to just go perfectly across. And as he's wallpapering, next thing you know, on the other end, it's shife. It's off. Because the drywall is crooked. <laughs> Who never framed his house, not Abe, because he'd make it perfect. But some, the framer had basically made everything crooked. So even the wallpaper was straight, the whole building, the whole thing didn't work. And he said him and Millie basically almost lost their marriage over trying to figure out how to get this wallpaper mounted on the wall in a straight line. But if that building had a cornerstone, that, that drywall had a cornerstone that made everything perfect, that wallpaper would have laid perfectly in line. Peter then, of course, 
uh, makes this illustration and applies this to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He's the plumb line by which everything is laid and everything is fixed. Because he's flawless now, because he's the flawless one, God can use him as the foundation of the church. So just like the cornerstone was the key to the foundation of the physical temple, Jesus is the key to the foundation of the spiritual temple. Because without him, the church doesn't exist. I mean, think about it. If you and I, if God, if you and I were going to be the presence of God who's perfectly holy and we have sin, the only way for us to stand before him is to be sinless. But because you and I are imperfect people, we can't offer God our lives in a perfect way. So we are imperfect people, we can't stand before a holy God. So someone sinless has to be a representative and make his right. And so for God, Jesus Christ, his son, was that one person. So when he died, he dealt with your and I's sin. So he is the cornerstone and the foundation to the church. Now, not only does Peter refer to Jesus as the cornerstone, in verse 4, he calls him the living stone. Look in verse 4, he says, I'm coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, I find it really important that he calls him a living stone. See, we don't worship a dead Jesus Christ. We worship an alive Jesus Christ, a living Jesus Christ. Too many times I think in the church we focus on the death of Jesus. The only reason why we have Christianity is because of the resurrection. And Peter's highlighting and saying this, listen, we worship a living God. Jesus Christ is alive and well. The result then is when we come to him, which verse 4 says us to, we are to do, when we come to him, we become living stones in the church, in his temple. Because he's living, when we place our lives in him, we become living. And we inherit his, his nature, his eternal life. Out of this, then, we become built up into this spiritual house, as verse 5 says. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Ephesians chapter 3 does a great, uh, ver does a great job of summarizing this. Read this with me in 3, 19 and 20. Paul writes this. So when you are no longer... Sorry, I'm trying to get it again. Okay, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Right? Jesus Christ lays his life down. He becomes the perfect sacrifice for sin, the way to reconcile us to God. The apostles and the prophets come along and they teach this message. But they're only teaching that message because Jesus has laid, has laid the groundwork, laid the foundation. And so the whole church is built up on the teachings of the apostles, the prophets, and with Jesus at the center of this whole building project. And I'll give you a picture of what it looks like for you and I to be living stones in the spiritual temple. And of course, this is just a small fragment of what it's actually going to be like. But this is kind of a cool picture. Alright, so you see the the formation of these people, different skin colors and different ages, and, and male and female, all, all different nationalities, all together in this spiritual house, this, the, the shape of a temple or church. And of course, this is worldwide. 
and unlimited. This, this building doesn't have an architectural end. It can, get, it can grow as big as, as, as possible. Now when we see this picture, we read Ephesians 3 and we listen to 1 Peter, we learn certain truths about the church. Is this should shape our view of how we see ourselves as the body of Christ through the lens of being a spiritual temple. The first thing I want you to think about is this. If this is the case, then the church is not dependent on a physical building. Whether we meet here or meet outdoors in nature, in the forest, in the woods, even if we were up in the air in a, in a plane or helicopter, it doesn't matter. The church can go underground, it can go overground, it can meet in the forest. God's presence is not limited to physical buildings and physical boundaries. He's present and accessible wherever God's people are gathered. The second truth would be that church is not confined to a particular people group or culture. Faith in Jesus is offered to every tribe and tongue. I was reminded this week as in my studies of Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I've been reminded this more and more recently. And I'm really glad John is here with his wife, Brenda, because they, these people were actually in my mind when I was preparing this, uh, this application, not knowing they would come today. But uh, John introduced me to a guy named Ken. And Ken is, uh, I've never met Ken before, he's from Calgary, but he's basically a missionary to people all around the world and trying to disciple people, and especially with the idea of becoming pastors and uh, in the future. And as he goes from culture to culture, he's really trying to help uh, men and women all over the world basically uh, learn who, who Jesus Christ is and, and learn how to go forth and proclaim those truths. But I was just thinking about this, here's Ken and here's John and I, and John and I know each other better and better every time we meet, but not in a, you know, not a deep, deep way yet. But uh, Ken, John and I are meeting in, this, uh, in Tim Hortons, and I'm thinking, man, God is present and accessible wherever His people are. He's, accessible, he's present with us in our conversation, and we fully have access to Him, and the body of Christ is not limited to just Genesis House meeting in the RPAC Center, it's, or, or confined to different people, group, or culture. Here we all are with God working in all of our midst. So that's the first illustration. We are living stones in the temple. We are part of God's spiritual house. But the second one, actually, before I do that, let me say one more thing. Before we talk about the priesthood here, I want to discuss one more great thing of importance in this spiritual temple. You notice here that you don't belong to this spiritual house unless you come through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. And coming to Him as to a living stone. Look at verse 6. And he who believes in Him will be not disappointed. The world wants to believe that you can belong to God's spiritual home through every other mean except Jesus Christ. But that's simply a lie. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Acts 4.12, Peter, in his address to the church, there's no other name under heaven other than Jesus Christ in which we are saved. So it's important then that we proclaim this truth and we don't water this message down because of the pressures of our culture, society, and the times we live in. Or in the closeness of someone who's close to us that we don't want to offend, like a family member or a friend. But I was reminded of the importance of speaking about this last week and something that excitingly happened to me. You remember about four to five weeks ago I asked you to pray for a woman in this church who was coming out of Islam and we prayed for her corporately. So that Sunday I gave her the gospel. Uh, The next week I gave her the gospel again another phone call. And then one day I get this text, on June 5th, which is Tuesday of last week, I got um, a text message from her after two weeks of back and forth. And she wrote this to me. She says, hey Andrew, uh, do you have, like basically you have time for me? I said, yeah. She goes, I'm having a hard time connecting with God. I feel like I'm confused because of Islam and there being so many other religions. So these are the kind of questions you don't answer by text. I'm like, can I call you? And she said, sure. So we arranged to speak on the phone. We started talking. I said, what do you mean by this? I said, describe what you mean by connected to God. When you say you're having a hard time, what do you mean by that? And she said this to me. She said, well, when I'm having a really good day and I'm feeling like on an emotional high, I can feel that he's close to me. And then when I'm really struggling and I'm kind of down in the dumps, I feel like he's far away from me. And I said, oh, okay, that's what you mean by connection. I said, what? And I said, I, and I said to her, basically, what you're believing is a lie. I said, your feelings don't have anything to do with whether God is far or close to you. And I gave her the story of Abraham, who in no way, shape, or form would have been walking to the altar with Isaac, throwing a parade with what he was about to do. Noah wouldn't have enjoyed building the ark with all the cultural pressures. Rahab would have been scared out of her trees, hiding Israelite spies. All of these people in the Old Testament would have taken tremendous courage to show faith and their feelings wouldn't have been lining up with what they wanted to do. But they did it anyway. They obeyed the Lord based on His promises. So I walked her through this and I reminded her of the Gospel message. I had told her a couple times before, I said, unless you confess your sin, come clean with God with all you've done, and are willing to surrender your life to Him and go His way from this day forward, you won't be a Christian. So I brought that up to her. I basically said, you have to, as verse 4 says, come to Him. And she says, and I said, and I said, oh, and I, yeah, she said, I haven't done that yet, even though we talked about it twice before. And that makes sense, because nobody I know has received the gospel the first time they've heard it. I've never had anyone receive it the first time. I know it exists, but not in my life. So I was like, you have to do that. So I reminded her of what she had to do. And she says, I know you're right. I know you're right. Next day, Wednesday, June 6, I received this text message. She says, I prayed last night and did the sins thing that you told me to do. So I phoned her about an hour later, and then I made it clear one more time. I said, you understand who you confessed your sins to, right? You understand that faith comes through Jesus Christ. You understand that? And she says, yes, I do. 
See, I've learned in my evangelism and everything that you don't take for granted what people hear and believe. Now, here's the cool thing. Uh, I get another text message last week. She started her, she has two jobs. She basically works from like nine or like, like yeah, she works from the morning to like 10 at night. She's a hard worker. She made it to morning prayer at a church in Calgary that morning. Here she is one week into Christianity going to morning prayer at a Christian church. <laughs> I said to her, it must be a lot different than the Islamic prayers you do five times a day. She goes, oh yeah. She goes, I started, yeah, she really was a cool story. See, I wanted to skirt the issue. I didn't want to say come to him, right? Because you want to, you want her to, you want to play on her emotions and, and have her by feelings get into the kingdom, but you can't. That's a total lie. You have to confess your sin and surrender your life to Jesus Christ in obedience. Otherwise, you are not a Christian. But once you do that and you put your faith in the cornerstone, you become a living stone in His spiritual temple. But Peter recognizes, though, not everyone's like Gloria, this woman. The majority have come and will come to reject them. We pick this up in verse 4. He says, coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. We also pick this up in verse 7 and 8. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. You notice here that Peter's a realist. He knows that Jesus was rejected by men and will be continue to be rejected by men, and in verse 7 was rejected by the builders. So let's talk about who these two groups are. The men in Peter's initial context, of course, when he was a disciple of Christ, would have been Israel as a whole. Israel as a whole rejected Jesus Christ. Remember John, I think it's chapter 1, he says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But then also in John chapter 1 it says the world, he came to the world and the world didn't receive him either, which are the Gentile people and everyone else, like you and I, as you and I in terms of our culture. So this is just a reference, men is a reference to, to people throughout history who've, who've rejected Jesus Christ. These builders, though, in verse 7, will have been the Jewish leadership. They'll have been the Jewish leadership. These are people who should have been building up their own Jewish people spiritually, and Gentiles who wanted to become part of Israel, teaching them the ways of God. But actually what they did was tear them down. And remember, Jesus called them out. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like, you're like an open grave to the people through your teaching, the way you're leading people away from God. So the question, though, is why would anyone reject them? Why would people reject Jesus Christ? Why did Israel reject him? Why are we rejecting him? Well, verse 7 tells us that he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So what's so offensive about Christ? Well, it has to do with his mission and his message. His mission and his message. Remember, in his day, his mission. The people believed him to be the Messiah and expected them to have a political and social revolution. They expected Jesus to free them from Rome, from under their tyranny, and establish nation, Israel as an autocratic nation again. And so they'd be autonomous and be able to govern, their own, govern themselves one more time. And so they wanted him to basically free them from this political oppression. And ultimately, there'd be spiritual benefits as well. 
but it was mostly they wanted a Santa Claus Jesus. And we see this even with the cruci- uh, with his followers, his closest followers, on the night of the crucifixion, no less. Or sorry, I should say that after the crucifixion, remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to these men walking down the road, and he goes, "What's up, guys? Why are you so sad?" And they say, "We were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel." We are hoping he was going to redeem Israel. That's Luke 24. And the irony is Christ did redeem Israel. <laughs> and you and I from something else other than politics. Obviously from sin. But they were expecting him to do something about their political situation, their social economics. He didn't. And they were sad. Remember, remember also his mission when he, in, when, uh, in Matthew 16 with Peter. He says to Peter, who do people say I am? He says, well, some say Elijah, and some say this and that. And he says, who do you think I am? He goes, I think you're the Christ. And he goes, man, bang on. You didn't get that from flesh and blood, but God revealed that to you. And then what does Jesus say? I'm going to suffer and die, by the way. I'm going to suffer and die. That's part of my mission. And what does Peter say? He takes him aside, rebukes him, and says, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. You're not that kind of Messiah. That will never happen under my watch. And he gets called satanic for it. Jesus' mission, he made it clear over and over. He came to die for sin. And the people hated him for it. What about his message? Well, because he came to die for sin, the very thing he called out in people's lives was sin. Everywhere he went... He said, you're not right with God. 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 Remember the rich wrong ruler who came all puffed up thinking he was going to be accepted into the kingdom? I actually expected Jesus' answer to say, you're doing well. He shows up and he says, by the way, you got a problem. Money is an idolatrous issue in your life. He walks away from Jesus. Remember the paralytic in Mark? They lower him for for physical healing and he says, by the way, there's something else I'm going to do for you before I become a Santa Claus Jesus to you. I'm actually going to take care of your sin. What do you mean? Yeah, there's sin. I'm going to take care of it for you. And just so you know I have the power to do so, I'm going to do that first and then I'm going to heal him. You see why he's offensive. He even told the Jews, the leaders, he he says, your father is Satan. He told them that in John. Your father is the devil. He told him straight up. You see why this is offensive. I mean, the Jews thought because of their bloodline from Abraham, their heritage, their observance of the law, they were right with God. And he says, you're not right with God. You have unconfessed sin. And you haven't surrendered your life in a way that's obedient to, to him. You can see now why he's offensive in our culture as well in our intolerance, or actually in our fully tolerant, supposedly, all-inclusive culture, how dare you tell me that I've got a problem that Jesus Christ needs to deal with? How dare you ever do that, you judgmental, hypocritical Christian? So let's finish now with looking at the second metaphor. Not only are we living stones, we are called priests. In verse 5, we're called a holy priesthood. And in verse 9, we're called a royal priesthood. In verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
This is a significant title when you remember Old Testament temple times. If you were to go back in the Old Testament and come to the temple in Jerusalem, one thing would be very clear to you as a commoner walking into the temple. It would become very clear that God was inaccessible to you and He was completely off limits for you. This was obvious in a couple different ways. First, the physical layout of the temple was such that this was very evident. You see, there was two parts to the temple, the outer court and the inner court. You could come to the gate of the outer court and come in through that, come into there, but you were never allowed in the inner court. That was reserved for the priests. But God wasn't even residing just in the inner court. There was another place within the inner court that He was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. So you weren't even allowed in the inner court where the priests were allowed. Not only that, you weren't even, you weren't even remotely allowed even into the Holy of Holies as well, where God's presence was over above the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant. Even the priesthood knew God was off, access, was off access to Him. Because some, the priests were allowed in the inner court, but even then only one priest, the high priest, was allowed in the Holy of Holies once a year. Just one guy once a year. That's it. And they were so freaked out about it that according to the Jewish uh, traditions I've read, they tied a rope around his ankle so that if he died in the presence of God, they could just tow him out because they were too afraid of going in to get him because they'd be smoked. Not only that, they had bells in their clothes. So as long as the bells were ringing, they knew he was alive. If the bell stopped ringing, they knew he was dead and they could just yank on that rope. I mean, that's how, that's how off-limits the priests even had with God and where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now you remember now, oh yeah, so that's the first thing. He was, he was off limits in terms of physical layout of the temple. And that was so obvious to you as a commoner. Second thing though, you made, you made it obvious that God was off limits, was this idea that you couldn't come to God directly in worship. Someone else also had to mediate on your behalf and intercede for you. And that was the priests. Now the priests, this continued until Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the ceremonial law. So there was no more requirements for priests to intercede and do animal sacrifices after the cross, Jesus fulfilled that. And then worshippers are free to come to God directly with no need of intercession. And you remember the significant event of the crucifixion that demonstrated this, remember? He dies, breathes his last breath, the temple curtain is torn from two, from top to bottom. Now, I, I would have loved to have been there because that, that curtain is like, like blocking like the, the Holy of Holies, like it's, like it's blocking the Ark of the Covenant, and if you went behind it, you'd die. So this temp, like imagine the priests like losing their minds, fleeing, thinking, oh my goodness, God's presence is going to be accessible to us, and we're going to basically die with this curtain being withdrawn from us. And it was just a picture that Jesus Christ had completely shattered that barrier between us and Him. Free access to worship God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, what's cool about this, though, is that because of this crucifixion, we then become priests. And a priest's job, as you know, primarily was to do animal sacrifices. That's how you come and worship. You bring your blood sacrifice and uh, your animal sacrifice would be slaughtered there at the, at the outer court and then you would be um, declared basically 
uh, your sins would be atoned for, and so you'd be uh, it'd be a great picture of like sort of like this idea that God's accepted you based on your sacrifice. Now you'd think then, with him referring to us as priests, that sacrifices would be over for us, but it's not. In verse five, he says, "You also, as living stones, have been built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices." That means for you and I. As priests, sacrifice is still required. So what are spiritual sacrifices? Has any of you ever done a study, or does anybody know what spiritual sacrifices are according to the New Testament? I didn't. I knew I had a couple ideas, but I, was, I couldn't passage and verse tell you for sure. Pardon? Yes, our bodies, yeah. I'm going to give you seven. All right? We're going to run through this. This is a fascinating study. It'll be a great sermon series, by the way, which I'm not going to do right now. <laughs> I'm going to give you the Coles Notes version. All right, here's the spiritual sacrifices as priests for New Testament believers our bodies. Romans 12 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I remember being in Regent College, and you know, you, you kind of know things, but when someone says something profound, it just solidifies in your mind something stronger. My, my professor said to me, he says, or to the class, he says, you know, what was the one thing that marked the difference between Christians and the Gentile world. What was the one thing behavior-wise that was a complete uh, change in, in, in obvious behavior between a, between a Gentile who was a non-Christian and a Christian? He says, what they did with their bodies in the sexual arena. Sexual immorality was rampant, 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 rampant through the through the, uh, the, the Roman period. I mean, that's why the, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing so much with sexual sin. You knew you were a Christian by the way you behaved in the sexual arena because it markably changed the way you looked from your culture. And it's so clear to this day as well in our culture, the same thing. What we do with our bodies is a clear indication. It shows God that we're sac as a holy sacrifice because He knows we have a different option of what to do and we're choosing still not to do those things out of love for Him. So our bodies is the first one. Second one, our praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of His lips they give thanks to his name. I think when we give thanks to the Lord, it's not just for things like redemption and salvation, but it's his attributes. Thanking God for his attributes and the works and the things that he's done for us and in this world as well. But when we give thanks and we have a thankful heart, God sees that as a sacrifice from us. That's pretty remarkable when you think about that. Hebrews 13, 16, our possessions. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. 
So again, in an individualistic culture where it's all about he who has the most toys wins, Jesus says, he who has the most toys, who shares them with everybody else, actually wins. <laughs> right? Don't store up treasures in heaven, or, or in earth, but store them up in heaven. In other words, even if you do have possessions, make sure you're generous with them and you take care of those that are in need, especially those within the household of the church. The Bible is so clear in that. Do not neglect your brother or sister in need. Take care of them as your priority. Philippians 4.18 talks about a sacrifice being support of Christian workers, financial support of Christian workers. This is, this is Paul. But I have received everything in full and of abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, while pleasing to God. When people um, are dedicated to serving God in terms of like full-time work, or even part-time work, in terms of the kingdom, and, and basically taking a leadership role within that, whether they be missionaries or pastors or whatever, when we give to them financially, God sees this as an acceptable sacrifice. Our converts, those we lead to Christ. Romans 15, 15 to 16. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace of God given to me to a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty, isn't that a great term from today's passage? To proclaim the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an, off an offering and ac acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Your priestly duty, Paul says, is when you bring people to the Lord, it's an incredible sacrifice to him. Isn't that encouraging? Does it give you more of a heart for relational evangelism, like Nicole was sharing earlier? God sees that as sacrificial. How about our love? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Uh, our definition of love in the Christian community is simply this. It's, um, it's self-sacrificial. It's done in selfless humility, right? It puts the other person's needs above your own so that they can benefit and there's no expectation of return from you. There's no expectation of return. How you know when it's non-sacrificial is when you love, but you want something back, or you expect something back, and when you don't get it, you treat the other person and make them know that you're frustrated with them about it. Christian love is when it's done with self-sacrifice with no expectation of return so the other person can benefit. That's Christian love. And one more, our prayers. Revelation 8, 3 and 4. Another angel came and stood on the altar. So again, here we are at the sacrifice, places where sacrifices are made. Holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hands. So on this altar were the sacrifices, or on this altar are the prayers, our prayers that we've made to God. 
and they're going up before him and he sees those things. Do you notice what's not on here in terms of a spiritual sacrifice to God? It's not on the list of doctrines you can recite. It's not how much of the Bible you know in terms of being able to like play Jeopardy with it or whatever. It's not what you believe in your, in your head. It's how you live out your life. How you live out your life. It's not what you believe. I mean, ultimately what you believe affects how you live. But there's nothing here about how much... Did you notice how much you study the Bible? Things like that? They're not in there. It's Studying the Bible is to produce in you a life that will change and move towards these types of sacrificial behaviors. The knowledge is to propel you forward. It's not to have an end goal in and of itself. But I love this, how you, your bodies, like what, you know, when you, how you like speak and what you say in terms of praise, how you live out your life and your, with your, how you handle your physical body, your, your possessions, your support of Christian workers, <clears throat> your time to lead people to Jesus Christ, how you love one another. You could, spending time praying as opposed to watching Netflix, not that Netflix is wrong in and of itself, but there's a time when maybe, you know, it's eight hours of Netflix a week and 20 minutes of prayer might be a little bit out of balance. These are all sacrifices to the Lord. Now it's really important I say this because next week, in next week's sermon, we're going to speak about the second role of the priesthood. The first role of the priesthood, for you and I being priests, is worship. Our first role is worship, these seven spiritual sacrifices. This is a form of worship to God. But our second form is witness. Our second is witness. And look in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, so that, purpose clause, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. You should be a proclaimer of truth, a witness, not only in speech, but in the way you live your life. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe, your, observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You are a witness as a royal priest, the way you speak and the way you live your life in morality. And next week's sermon is fully dedicated to our role as priests as witnesses. Uh, this week was dedicated, of course, just to how we worship the Lord and how we even are allowed to enter into His presence in the first place. So I'll leave you with three lessons. First one is this. Believers have free, unlimited access to worship God because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Do you know that your ability to worship God and His presence with you hasn't been this good since Adam and Eve? Do you understand that? That do you know that your, your access to the Lord and His willingness to be with you has not been this good since the days of the garden? I think I'm going to show you something very interesting. In the bottom corner you see gar in the garden, 
Imagine that being the presence of the Lord at its fullest. He was intimately connected with them. After the garden, in the sin, the arrow is going vertical to after the garden. And that represents God's absence from Adam and Eve in terms of presence. Okay, So in the garden, God is fully present. After the sin, he's fully away from them in the vertical line to, in terms of communication and closeness to them. Since Adam and Eve, though, God's been on a repair job. He's been on a repair job to get closer and closer and closer to humanity over the 6,000 years since the garden. He started with Abraham. He went to him and had a verbal conversation. He gave him a vision. Then he would disappear for years. And Abraham would not hear from God again. He would give him a, he would give him a promise. He'd give him a, a, a word. And he was to bank his entire life off of that. He would go for years without hearing from God again. And then God would come back to him and promise him something again. His whole life was banked off of these occasional revelations from the Lord. The Holy Spirit did not indwell in his life like you and I. So Abraham becomes the first Jew. And then you know the rest of the history of redemption of the Israelites. Now the temple comes. What does God do in terms of descending order? He gets closer to people. He gets closer in presence. How? He builds a temple or tabernacle originally in which he could dwell. He would come to Moses and Moses could commune with him regularly. If Moses wanted to talk to God every day, he could. He would just go and God would meet him. Abraham didn't have that. But the people couldn't. The people couldn't. Only Moses could. The people weren't even allowed near where Moses was, and they couldn't enter into the tabernacle. The priest met them at the door. The priest couldn't only go, could go in the inner court, but couldn't go in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest once a year, and Moses. But still, the people are off limits. Next phase, Jesus Christ comes in human form to earth and indwells with Israel for, for, three, or for 33 years. He is now present, God is now present amongst the people. The problem is, is that only Israel gets to see him and the rest of the world doesn't. <laughs> so Jesus knows he has to leave the world because it's better for him to go so a helper can come so that, that the whole world can have an experience of God's presence through the, resi the residing of the Holy Spirit. And we live in the most privileged state as, of, in, as believers since Adam and Eve. Don't forget that because when you go through trials, What's your number one complaint and thought? Mine is this. Where are you, God? Why aren't you there for me? Why are you so like gone from me? And so on and so forth. And, he's, and Peter's saying, don't forget the privileges you have. Because if you were Abraham or a Jew in the temple or anything else like that, you would not have the privilege that you do now. And ultimately, in heaven, we're restored back to Adam and Eve, but even greater than that. Because Satan won't be able to tempt and there will be no, there'll be no more uh, stumbling blocks put in our way to trip us up on our faith. Isn't that, isn't that great? <laughs> I think it is. Not because I wrote it, but I didn't, I, 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 just so you know, I didn't, I didn't make this up in my head. I was taught this, okay? So, like, uh, yeah. It's just really cool to think about. Okay, second lesson. God's presence is not limited to a physical building where the pe wherever God's people gather. 
In religion, buildings are sacred. Right? In religion, buildings are sacred. How dare you wear those clothes in here or wear those shoes on, put your shoes on this part or, you know, you, uh, you know, dip your, you know, throw your gum in the holy water or whatever, you know? Like, how dare you do those things? In Christianity, the buildings aren't sacred. The people are. In Christianity, people are sacred, not the building. God doesn't care if we meet in the RPAC Center or in someone's home or we meet out in the woods. He doesn't care. Or if it's in Tim Hortons. Wherever we gather. I was reminded of Acts 17, 24-25. Paul is going through the Areopagus and he's talking to people in Athens. And he says this to them. You know, you worship idols, but let me tell you about the real God. He says, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath on all things. You know, all of us as believers know, instead of having to go to an altar or a holy place or a temple to worship God, we have the privilege, again, of being in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. And finally, as a holy priesthood in God's spiritual temple, sacrifice is still required of us. Don't think, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like a priest, like I've got nothing to do. I don't, you have lots to do. Animal sacrifice was an easy thing to do. You had like a one main task. We have at least seven, and I might have missed a couple from scriptures about how to live our lives out. Don't think your life as a priest is void of sacrifice. There's ways in which we can please God with the way we live as priests.